And it says she was, uh, this is Hannah's story, right? This is in 1 Samuel 1. It says she was uh, deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord, and she wept. Samuel bitterly, she was a terrible kingmaker. Look on the misery of your servant and remember me. And not he was awful at it. But will give to your servant Had a child. And no clue. I'll set him before what you he as was a doing. until the day of. His as far as I can tell, in the book of Samuel, the book that and his bears no his name in our reading. Samuel had one single metric that he used right? when I mean, picking kings. Serious, How tall they were. The book opens. That seems to be what he what liked about next, Saul. Though, and when he shows priest, up at Eli. Jesse's okay. house or, and uh, has the uh, sons of Jesse judge. come out before him, he comes and he sees he sees her. this firstborn son named Eliab, and he, sa- and, he and it says that he thought. So Surely badly the Lord's anointing is now before the Lord. He says this word. This is like one of the most magnanimous in Samuel 16, misunderstandings. But the I Lord think in said scripture. to Samuel, this is, this is what do he not says look he says, on his appearance or on the How long of will you make a drunken a drunken him. spectacle of yourself? Put away your and wine. Just so that Samuel what a gets the point. <laughs> righteous Holy thing to do, right? He's trying to do his priestly work here. He sees that there, that this, this shrine, there's this woman there, and she seems to be just kind of muttering to herself. And, and he says, Eli, who, Eli, who is like the leader of God's people here at this point, who should have known better too, he thinks he can perceive what is happening with this woman, and he thinks she's drunk. And so he comes with this magnanimous, righteous proclamation that she should turn away. And she looks at him. <laughs> and she says, uh, no, no, my Lord, I'm a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And of course, there's this exchange that follows. Eli has to put his foot in his mouth, and then he ends up uh, saying that the Lord will hurt her. And, and that's the story of Samuel's birth. That's the story of the woman who gave birth to Samuel, a woman deeply misjudged by an outward appearance. When indeed she was, had a heart full for the Lord and was pouring out her soul before the Lord. Samuel should have known better. But he didn't. And so, when it comes time for Samuel's first attempt at making a king... When it comes time for Saul to be replaced, because he has so egregiously um, forsaken what God wants him to be as the leader of Israel, there's this series of things that happens. And Samuel himself 
seems to be deeply grieved. He is deeply grieved of the things that have gone awry with Saul. You can, if you read those early ch- uh, stories of Saul and Samuel, you can tell that Samuel really wants Saul to do right. He really wants things to turn out well for Saul, and it just doesn't happen. And things get worse and worse. And finally, when they come to this point where Saul is uh, rejected by the Lord as the king of Israel, there's this funny little um, pair of emotions that are in Samuel's heart that I think are important to see. At the end of chapter 15, uh, after Saul and Samuel have had this confrontation, this exchange, it says, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. He's troubled. He's deeply troubled by what's happened with Saul and Puzzled by it, I'm sure, and mourning over it. But then it says after that in chapter 16 as it opens, um, when the Lord says to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel says, listen to this. Samuel says, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. Can you hold those two things together? Here is Samuel, deeply grieved over how things are happening with Saul. He cares about what's happening with Saul. But on the other hand, he knows that if he gets on Saul's bad side, Saul will kill him. Can you hold those two things together? How he knows things are completely wrong. And he knows that Saul is a dangerous king. But also, he has a mournful heart because he just wants it to be right. See, the story that we read here in 1 Samuel 16 is a story laden with conflict. It's about Samuel and what Samuel has to learn. Both about kings and also about himself as the kingmaker. He has to learn about that place where his limitations meet his vocation. Where his ability to perceive, his inability to perceive truth and reality comes to what it is that he's been trying to do in his life and what he's been called to do. It's a challenging thing to come face to face with the limits of your own perceptions. And the whole story does seem to me to be orchestrated to teach Samuel that thing which he should have known from the beginning. I mean, the parade of people that come, the parade of sons that has to come up, 
the whole exercise of Samuel swallowing his pride and doing something that is admittedly dangerous, indeed treasonous, to go and anoint a new king while one is already on the throne. All of this seems to be, to me in the story, to be drawing out Samuel so that he can learn this incredibly important lesson. And it's there in verse 7. Right after he's looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed stands now before the Lord. In verse 7, this is what we read. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. It's the part we read a moment ago. And then there's this. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. This is an all-important message for what's happening in the book of Samuel. See, I think it's not just what happens in this story that is trying to help uh, Samuel understand this particular truth. I think it's part of the whole story up until now. It's part of everything that happened with Eli and then with Samuel the child and then with uh, Saul and all the things that have led up to this story. I think all the way we have been led by the story to be ready to hear this truth. That the Lord doesn't see like people see. They judge the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And everything, honestly, after this point, from the way the story will develop from here on out, I think all of that is part of, uh, a part of that story, too. Dr. Fortner last week uh, referenced this line about... Um, the way people see outward appearance and the Lord looks on the heart and the tension between those things. He referenced that and, and said that it was a revolutionary idea. It was the kind of thing that could get you in a lot of trouble. Remember him saying that last week, some of you? And it's true. This is a revolutionary idea. In fact, it is a bomb to the way that the world works. The idea that there are deeper truths about who humans are and what lies within us and that the creator God sees those things and that we cannot. That is a stark reality that levels all of the power structures of the world and enables the kind of reversal that Hannah had talked about in her poem at the, at the beginning of the book. It is one of those things that enables the reversal story of God, uh, both here and also in the Jesus story. Isn't that one of the things that makes Jesus' story in the gospel so revolutionary? Is that he all the time is seeing and perceiving people in deeper ways. And so he sees 
the tax collector that for all outside external uh, circumstances is a kind of person that is on the outside of good formal society and is a, tra- a traitor to his country. And Jesus looks at that person and says, that would make a mighty fine apostle of mine. Jesus looks at the fisherman on the side of the sea and says, ah, he would make a good rabbinical student someday. Jesus looks at the Pharisees who seem to have it all together and he says, you're like whitewashed tombs, all polished on the outside, but inside you're full of ugly bones and death. Be at every turn, whether it be with a woman of ill repute or whether it be with a prince who thinks he holds the world in his hand, Jesus at every turn looks at people and sees them for who they really are, is willing to unmask that, and then he looks at people and tries to give them a chance to become the people inside and out, who God has created them to be. This message of Jesus, of the outside and the inside, and how they don't always match, that is a revolutionary concept in the gospel of Jesus. It's part of what uh, enables the gospel of reversal within Luke's story and then the other gospels too. But the seed of that message is all the way back here in 1 Samuel. In the story of David. In the story of a prophet. A prophet! Who thinks he knows how the world works, but has to be told, the Lord doesn't see things like you do. You're looking at the outside You're measuring how tall this brother is. But the Lord is concerned with the heart. It is a revolutionary message. Maybe the revolutionary message in Scripture. This changes everything. Once we come to grips with the reality... That God sees our hearts and that other people don't. Once we perceive and grasp the reality that we tend to see other people based on things like how pretty or handsome they are, on what kind of clothes are on their body, and how successful they've been in their jobs, or how together their family looks from the outside. Once we understand that we tend to perceive people based on things as frivolous as the color of their skin, or the place in town where they live, By how cool they come across and what kind of social graces and charms they have or don't. When we perceive 
that our ability to judge the righteousness of a person is distorted, fatally distorted, by our inability to look past the shell of people, the husk. When we perceive that we look with faulty eyes on the outside appearance, but that God indeed looks on the heart, it changes everything. What relationship would be unchanged by that reality? What decision would be unchanged in the face of a God who can see through the inside and a realization that we tend to judge on the outside. It changes everything. And for the people who are called not just to realize that, but called indeed to follow such a God. What does it mean to follow a God for you and I? What does it mean to follow a God who can see our realities, our deepest inner parts? What does it mean for us to learn to accept both his denouncement of our own perceptive abilities while also accepting the reality of what God's perception is too? I want to offer... Uh, three things today. I know it's not characteristic of me. I don't like to do the three-point thing very often, but I want to offer three things today that I think are consequences of this for the people of God. In other words, these are three things that if we believe that, if we believe that that reality of that God, uh, people tend to look on the outside and God looks at the inside, the heart of people, there are three things, that, consequences, I think, that come to us in how we live as the people of God. And this first one is that God knows our hearts. God knows you to the very core of who you are, and yet still God loves us deeply. Soak that in a little bit. Soak that in. In the gospel of Jesus, we know that the Lord loves us and chooses not to abandon us, that God has indeed given His own Son Because of his deep love for us. And God does that. And God offers us that love. While knowing us at the very core of who we are. Soak that in a little bit. Because how much of our hiding and our masking and our our manipulation of other people is Because we want them to love us. We want them to like us. And yet we're afraid to show our true colors. We're afraid to show who we really are. And the only being in the cosmos that knows you down to the very core. That knows every internal thing about you. That being loves you deeply. What about that, right? That is a life-changing choice. God sees your flaws, and God sees the things that are broken within you too, okay? But yet, God sees you through and through, and still chooses to love you, and God's not wrong about that. 
God is not wrong in valuing you. Did you know that? Sometimes in the way we talk about Jesus in the gospel, it's like, well, we were trash, but God loved us because he's just silly that way. That's not true. God loves you because you are valuable and lovable at your core. Did you know that? God's not wrong in loving you. That's a bad way of receiving the gospel. Now, there are things that are broken with us, things that sin and guilt that we carry that we had to have wa- uh, washed away. All right, There's things that are wrong with us that had to be dealt with, that need to be fixed, okay? But you know what? God still sees us and loves us not because of a misperception of who we are, Not because we've tricked him. God sees the truth of us and still deeply loves us. In fact, God's wholehearted love for you is the most true thing about you. There is no other truth or perception or identity that you have that is more important or more true than the fact of God's love for you. That the God who sees you for exactly who you are, that God loves you. And you know what? Some of us, Struggle to love ourselves. But you know what? God knows more than you do. Some of us even judge ourselves by our outward appearance. We judge ourselves by those flaws and those things that we know. You know what? And those things, they may be true, but they're not the most true thing. They're not the most true thing. Somewhere in our core is something so true of us that God chooses to love us. And we may not be able to perceive down deep enough into ourselves, but God knows us better than we do. And that God affirms His love for us in the deepest and truest ways possible. So God knows our hearts. God judges us differently than we would even judge ourselves. And that God still loves us deeply. And so because of that, and because of this other, just the other realities that we're talking about today, let me say another, a second thing. Second, we don't chase appearances. This is a revolutionary way of life for the church that receives it. Imagine a church that lays down, as a spiritual discipline in practice, lays down every pretense of outward appearance that refuses to chase after things like that. A church that's not preoccupied by what they look like, they're not 
preoccupied by the sorts of things that people spend so much of their lives chasing, that we waste so much of our energy chasing. Can you imagine a church that lays down all that and refuses to put in any energy into chasing appearances? You know, one of the greatest moments in any person's life is the day that they decide they're going to stop chasing cool. Listen, cool comes in lots of forms, by the way. There's like cool, cool, and then there's like uncool on purpose to be cool with another group that thinks uncool on purpose is cool, cool. Did that, did that follow? Okay. Like intentionally uncool. Cool. There are all kinds of ways that we pursue other people loving our shells. Aside from the crazy things that we do to our bodies to make them look like I don't even know how to say this. Make them look like the particular cultural ideal that is true of this particular moment in time and is acknowledged as beautiful. And how much crazy energy is wasted by chasing that totally non-real thing. Physically. Culturally. Socially. Saddest thing in the world is somebody that is trying to use, trying to change their outward appearance just to make somebody else love them. I don't have to say it any clearer than that. But that whole sink of energy is just remarkably sad and tragic because it distorts who we really believe ourselves to be. It distorts our image of ourselves. It's the thing... Um, by the way, this, uh, this thing of uh, being able to uh, not chase outward appearances... It's related to that first thing. Because when we get into the routines of trying to chase outward appearances for ourselves and we put more and more of our worth in the way that we appear or the way our reputation stands or what, uh, whether people think we're cool or what kind of thing, uh, things it is that makes us look good in front of other people, the more that we chase those things, the less we believe that God actually loves us on the inside. Because the more that we chase those outside things, the more out of touch we become with our real, internal, true, beloved selves. Do you know that? The more energy you put on the outside, the less in touch you'll be with the inside. That's why Jesus so many times has to confront people and say, Look, man, wash the inside of the cup first. Wash the inside of the cup. Mind what's on the inside. On the, in your, nurture your internal life, your, the spirituality of your heart. Let those things be a part of how the, way, the, the primary way that you perceive yourselves. And then the outside things, they'll, they'll come. They'll follow in their own way. In the ways that matter, they will. But the more time that we put in, in more energy we put in being preoccupied with our outside appearance the less in touch we become with our internal selves. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is this. 
People of God that believe in a God that sees internally and that reckons that we ourselves are limited in our perception of those things has no choice but to see other people with humility. We don't get what's on the inside of people's hearts. When we come closest to doing this is when we allow ourselves to see our brothers and sisters and our neighbors and to to try to love them without understanding them. And then as we love them, we come to have some recognition that there's something on the inside of that other person that really is about the same as me in some ways. They're scared. They want affection. They want attention. They want love. They want to be safe. They want to have some freedom. But they also just want to have vitality and health. Sometimes we can break through. We love our neighbors into a place where we can kind of see and begin to perceive that there's something that's true of them on the very inside of their hearts that's similar to what's on the inside of who we are. But even then, we are still miles and miles away from being able to perceive the true lovable selves that they really are. Did you know if you were able to perceive your neighbors as God perceives them, it stands to reason to me that you would feel about your neighbors As God does. In other words, if you were able to actually see into your neighbor's heart, you would have no choice but to feel compelled to offer your very life for them and how valuable they are. If you perceived your neighbor as valuable, as as lovable as God perceives them, even in their brokenness and even with the reality of their sins, okay, you would have no choice except for to be compelled by that love to desire to even give your very life for theirs. Be driven by such a powerful love that you would be willing to sacrifice your own self. Isn't that amazing? All the people in your world that you don't yet feel ready to offer your life for theirs. You just don't know them that well yet. You don't see as far deep within them as God does. I'm, I, I want to say that of the, th- the things that we're talking about today, these, these consequences, this one is the most challenging one for me. Okay? Because I really want to believe that I can kind of read people well and I can have judgments about who they are. And, right, I mean, I can, I can make decisions. And, and frankly, in, in my work here, okay, in the week-to-week work that goes on here in the office, we're all the time trying to, trying to do that. It's, really hard. it's a really hard thing. People come and ask for help. We have to like kind of figure out. And you know what? It is difficult for me to accept with humility the reality that I really can't perceive 
the real truth of who people are. Shoot, I haven't done it yet, but I guess I'm just as liable as Eli was to look at someone who's pouring their heart out before the Lord and say, hey, you need to lay off the sauce. The truth is that I'm a pretty terrible kingmaker too. And just as bad as Eli or Samuel or all the other people that were following Saul around or whoever, as all the people in this story, even Jesse, he wasn't really, he apparently didn't even understand among his own sons which one of them would make the best king, right? That's me. That's me. I think I know the people that I would want to put in charge. I think I know the people that would make great kings. But when it comes to it, I'm a pretty terrible kingmaker. Because my perception is limited to the shell. It's limited to what people are able to show me from the outside. And at the end of the day, I just can't really fully know people like the Lord does. In the day, at the end of the day, I even struggle to see myself like the Lord does. This story, this story about how God comes and really shatters the whole power structure of the world, which should be based on outward appearance. And by the way, I don't mean like political power there. I mean like every form of power, sometimes just the kind of relational power that exists between people. Okay, some, every form of that res, relies on this whole ability of people to build up their outside. And then the Lord throws this bomb into it and blows all of that away. Says, I know what's on the inside of people. And you really don't. It's not just that I'm a terrible kingmaker. I'm just, I have a hard time seeing people. And all I know to do about that is to take some humility about it and then follow Jesus around. Follow Jesus. As he walks on the shore and calls out that fisherman or to the tax collector's booth and calls them out. Follow Jesus around and be surprised when a woman of ill repute is down on her knees washing her feet and he says, she actually loves me more than anybody else does. Follow Jesus around when he looks at the religious leaders and points his finger in their face and tells them that they need to get their inside straight with their outside. Follow Jesus around is he comes into my city and he points at those places where it seems like everything is wrong and everything's fallen apart and he says there there's actually righteousness in that home that you can't see or where he walks into the parts of our town where it seems like everything is just okay and everything is all right and he says here too is the brokenness of the world think about what it means for Jesus to walk along with me, for me to follow him through just the normal Monday here 
sit in with staff meeting and then to go and do some work in the office and go visit somebody in the hospital and go see, uh, go, go talk to some people who are trying to figure out how to keep the electric light, uh, bill on this, this month. All I know to do is to learn to have some humility about what I can perceive and to follow Jesus around eagerly desiring to see what he sees. And I find that when I do that, then I inch closer and closer and closer. And I do mean inch. Closer to learning what it means to actually loving people. To learn to love the Lord with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, but to learn to love my neighbor as I love myself. Or, to put it better, to learn to love my neighbor like the Lord loves my neighbor, like the Lord loves me. Let's pray together. We are who we are before you, O God. You see us through and through. We are laid bare before you. By your Holy Spirit, O God, teach us to love each other. Strip away our pretenses and our love for outward appearance. And let us in humility embrace the reality of your love for us and for our neighbors. Teach us by your Holy Spirit to have humble, loving eyes for those who are around us. Give us a glimpse of what you see, and may we be transformed. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Indeed, the Lord loves you so deeply. And if that has been something that you've struggled to realize and recognize, listen, the Lord, the Lord has gone to great lengths so that you know that despite anything you know about yourself that's bad and negative and sad and broken, the Lord wants you. The Lord loves you. And if that's a message that you need to embrace today, then you're welcome to do that while we stand and sing together. We